Welcome to The Whole Metaverse, a New York University School of Professional Studies podcast exploring the ever-expanding metaverse and Web3 landscape. Each episode, we'll talk to the pioneers, influencers, and innovators leading the way. If you want to understand and better navigate this burgeoning space, you're in the right place. Welcome to the whole Metaverse NYU podcast. Dr. Elizabeth Haas and myself, Pierre Gervois, are your co-hosts. Today, we have the pleasure to have Dominique Carbonaro, the business development lead for NFT and art at the blockchain Avalanche. And what's very interesting with Avalanche is that this blockchain really wants to focus on accessibility. As Dominique Carbonaro uh, uh, said, uh, it's so that the gas fees and the very high cost of gas fees on chains like Ethereum were too high and were preventing a mass adoption of blockchain as well as the as the speed and time necessary for transaction. And, and that's one of the main reasons it choose to to work with uh, with Avalanche. So, Liz, what are the the, the main the first case uh, use case of Avalanche? What I thought was pretty fascinating is how he's prioritizing where blockchain will make a difference short term. You know, and, and there he has ticketing and a class of NFTs around fine art, not collectibles, and the need for gaming and making them really something special. Uh, and I think it'll be fascinating to watch um, whether that prediction uh, holds or not and how Latin America comes on board here, which is un- one of their focuses. Just very fascinating. Okay. So let's watch uh, Dominique Carbonaro uh, interview. Dominique Carbonaro, uh, welcome to the whole Metaverse uh, NYU podcast. You're the uh, business development lead uh, NFT and arts uh, at the blockchain Avalanche. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Haas and myself, Pierre Gervois, or the co-host. Let's start w- with a, a, a personal uh, a, approach. At what point in your career have you heard about the blockchain and did you, did you have this idea that it was going to change the way we're doing business? That's a great question because I think everyone has joined this at a different stage in their life. I discovered blockchain technology in 2020, a little bit, like maybe a month or two before uh, all the COVID stuff happened. So maybe like January or February of 2020. I was working in technology sales. So I did ed tech sales. I worked for a publisher called Pearson, which I'm sure you all know. Um, went on to work for an- another publisher called Cengage and then went to a-, a startup to do affordable solutions. And I was doing that. Um, had a full team I was managing across a few states. And then around, yeah, January, February of 2020, my friend kept telling me about this crypto stuff. He's like, you got to buy it. Like, you got to buy it. You got to buy it. And so I was like, all right, I bought some because I trust him. He's a smart person. And then about six weeks later, the market just completely crashed. And I was like, well, now I got to learn about this stuff, right? So I spent, you know, a part of my job was always being on college campuses, meeting with professors, meeting with students. And, you know, during, during COVID, you couldn't really do any of that. I'm sure you're all well aware, right? So I had a lot of free time. And so I spent a lot of time really diving into it. And then I really started to, to discover a lot of just core, like just even at my own personal career, like fundamental business drivers we had that blockchain would have really helped provide value back to both the students and, 
and the professors. So it was kind of very clear to me when I first saw it. And then from there, it's pretty much been all I've cared about. So you're talking about, you know, the business drivers and how important it is and what it can do. In your vision, if everything came together and it delivered value the way you would imagine, what are those things? What what will it deliver two years from now in the ideal world? I think there's a lot of amazing use cases outside of education that, that specifically NFTs can help with. Um, a few I'm really excited about, one being ticketing for events and, and concerts and things of that nature. You know, artists and creatives monetize their 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 fan bases or their consumers, right? And so there's a lot of middlemen in that process that extract a ton of value from both the end consumer as well as the creator. Like, you know, Live Nation takes a huge percent of ticket sales from artists. They take 20% of merchandise sales at the door. Me as a secondary buyer, I then have to spend in you know 20, 30% fees sometimes to sell tickets on secondary markets. Or like what you saw with the Taylor Swift incident where they drastically oversold the front end of the ticket process and then tickets were seven, eight hundred dollars. So, you know, using NFTs as a ticketing tool to allow to allow creators to sell products directly to consumers, those fees and percentages would be drastically cut down on. You know, blockchain is very, very good at transferring ownership of those assets and proving that those tickets are authentic and real. So no more meeting up with someone and paying them cash and then giving you a ticket that might be fake. So I think there's a lot of really great just like use cases that that you know, me as an end consumer, I can see benefit from, and as well as the creator, I can see benefits from. Though I would say that's probably my most like short-term thing I, I see happening in the next few years. I think long-term, you know, adding things like um, deeds to your to to real estate on a blockchain in an immutable way, uh, verification of like diamonds that are on a blockchain that, that make it very easy to authenticate uh, using NFTs. Those types of use cases, I'm very confident will happen. But I just think the adoption cycle for getting that done is is a lot longer than some of the more short-term stuff. You, you also talk about education. Where do you imagine it being used in education? My father is a dean of a college. So I come from a family of educators. Education is always super important to me. My mom was a K counselor. My brother is a professor. My brother-in-law is a professor. So you know, I've seen a lot of facets of higher education. And I think the one that excites me the most is the ideas of scholarships. You know, Right now, I know personally there's a lot of people who maybe apply for scholarships that never intended to do the thing that they actually applied. Like people apply sometimes to get scholarships because they want to become a professor and have no intention of doing that. Or they apply for scholarships and it's contingent upon some type of uh, GPA or grades that they receive uh, for, their, for their renewals. And it takes a long time to, to pass the transferships of those grades. Even just applications of scholarships can be kind of cumbersome, right? Having to continuously supply your, your results or scores. So I think if you can find a way to streamline the scholarship process and make the payments of those very, very fluid. Cause like I can prove I've hit X, Y, or Z requirement and then payments released without having to go through a lot of manual steps because you can do those via smart contracts. I think there's a lot of opportunity in that, in that space. There are multiple blockchains out there. How do you differentiate Avalanche for prospective users who heard about uh, Polygon, Ethereum, Tezos, Solana, how do you convince them to go with Avalanche? Yeah. So I think there's really two approaches. There's like a builder and the technical side, so people who are making the apps, and then there's like the consumer-facing side, right? People who are just like buying and selling things. I think on the builder side, we are technically different, uh, really in two, in two cases. 
One, it's our approach to scaling blockchains. So all blockchains have the scalability trilemma. You know, the Ethereum's and Polygon's believe in this idea of, of vertical. So you'll have the base layer and then layer twos, layer threes on top of it. Avalanche believes in a concept called subnets. So essentially they're more, they're, 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 they're permissioned or permissionless blockchains that are part of the Avalanche ecosystem. So it's kind of like a chain of chains. Um, and we believe that that gives builders the most flexibility. So you can create a blockchain, decide who validates it, uh, decide who can enter it, who can't enter it. If you want a very permissioned, you know, controlled environment, or if you want a permissionless environment, you can open it up, right? So we believe in that approach for scaling. Also, um, Avalanche's consensus mechanism is different. So what I mean by that is it, on Ethereum, if you if you submit a transaction, it can take up to 12 plus minutes for that transaction to be confirmed. So meaning like I, come, I submit a transaction within eight to nine minutes, there's a potential ability for someone to reorganize those blocks and your transaction wouldn't have counted, right? Our time to finality is under two seconds. So when a block is committed, it's committed, it's confirmed, there's no go backs. And so those are really important for things like financial institutions or things that need fast settlement. So those are really two big technical differentiators. And then, you know, subnets use our consensus mechanism below. Most blockchains either use classical or Nakamoto consensus. We are one, we kind of made a, a, a leap in that, in that sense. Um, from the consumer side, Avalanche, because of its nature, gas fees are very cheap and affordable. So, you know, this is even a personal story for me. I started in crypto and blockchain in 2020. Um, and I started with Ethereum because it was all I ever knew. And I was making, you know, good money at the time. I wasn't exorbitantly rich, but I was in a career for five years. I had a college degree. I was doing well and I could barely afford it. And I had friends I wanted to tell about it and, and teach this stuff to, but I knew they just had no ability to participate. It was just way too expensive. Like they, you just too expensive. You couldn't even participate. So Avalanche has extremely cheap fees and it's very, very fast. And so part of that was I instantly saw that and I was like, I have this huge breadth of people I want to get into this and I can't even introduce them because the, the, the system's so prohibited and, and limited, right? And these are people in the United States who have careers and jobs and degrees. It was too expensive. So I, I started extrapolating this out to the rest of the world. And I said, if this is going to really address the entire world, there, it needs to be something that's accessible to everyone. And so um, Avalanche was you know, very, very cheap fees. It was very, very fast. And I could introduce people so they could practice and try and play with these new primitives. And so from the consumer facing side, I'd say that's, that's a huge advantage. And also, you know, some of the applications we have built on our blockchain are, are, are amazing. Everything from, from DeFi to games to, to NFTs, there's a lot of really fun things you can do. Geographically speaking, even if blockchain don't want to admit it, some blockchain are more focused on some geographical areas. So Ethereum is primarily focused in the United States. Tezos is focused in Europe. Africa, Middle East zone. So how would you define the geographical scope of Avalanche right now? That's a very good question. I would say right now, it's a little bit of a mix of United States. Uh, there's a lot of uh, Turkish. So I'd say it's US, Turkish, and some European. When we, you know, when we became popular and when, when Avalanche really had its explosive growth period back in 2021, 2021, you know, we were really well positioned because people wanted an alternative that was affordable that they could use. And so we captured a lot of very early on market share. So I'd say right now it's, it's yeah, between Turkey, US and Europe. Uh, a big focus for us, at least in my vertical in the NFT space, is going to be LATAM. We think there's a, a ton of amazing talent down there. Um, you know, 
there's a lot, cryptocurrencies go a really long way, especially in certain areas where their currencies are really, really volatile and experience immense, immense inflation. And so we really want to tap into that one culturally rich area to create amazing art and two, be able to provide a monetary option outside of their current one that might be more stable in the form of like stable coins or even our native token. So that's at least my approach going into next year where we really want to see a lot of growth. Before we jump into NFTs, I have one question and just make sure I'm interpreting what you said properly. Part of what differentiates you is you almost have a menu that lets people scale and how they want to put their blockchain together. It's a menu, not a build-driven approach, and that lets it be faster. Yeah, I would say the scalability options, like like what a subnet gives is it allows you to have more optionality. Of so do you want to have right, a... Pre- right. So you pick the options in the menu, right? And, and are there other blockchains that are designed that way or are you, or are you unique? Yeah, so, so there are other blockchains that are designed that way. It's called an app chain approach. Um, Cosmos has this has a similar scaling architecture. Polkadot has a sk- similar scaling architecture. The difference between Polkadot and Cosmos is they're bound to the to the power issue, where Cosmos can only have a hundred validators because of the way their consensus mechanism works. Each one has to talk to one talk, talk to one another. So as you add a validator, you're adding exponential more work, which slows down the process. Avalanche doesn't suffer from that because of our consensus mechanism. You can have millions of validators. I mean, we have fourteen hundred. So the way it works and through a gossip protocol, there's no limits. You don't have to be capped at 100. Tell us about your focus on NFTs and why you're focused there and where you see that going. So my focus, yeah, is on, is on NFTs. Um, I started at Avalanche in June. Um, I've been around the ecosystems and participating in, in, in the space for a very, very long time uh, since you know early 2020. And my focus when I started was to not so much like look outside and tell you what the weather was, because I think anyone can do that, right? My focus here is to say, where do I think there's real value, real long-term value, and work, how can I start building out those use cases now? And so like when I got into the space, the one thing that was extremely clear to me was the, the need and, and want for NFTs in the art space, specifically in the traditional art space. Um, things like being able to understand where titles have been transferred, um, being able to tokenize a traditional piece of art uh, on a blockchain and then get get liquidity or lending for that asset, right? Very, very, the, the, the art market and specifically the lending market for art is extremely large. Um, and then also being able to get, you know, go into extremely creative areas and allow people a different form of expression in the forms of NFTs and create a living off of that and create an artist story. So a big focus for ours has been, you know, identifying that niche, onboarding artists and creatives and starting to get you know, some really great stories of people who maybe were completely new to this and now are, you know, building careers out of becoming artists on the blockchain. The other thing that you talked about was the focus on Latin America. And I was just wondering how that fit in here. So Latam has a ton of amazing artists, actually. Like there's a, a lot of amazing art talent in Colombia, Argentina, Brazil, even, you know, we have some community members from Venezuela. Um, and so that region is not as prevalent in crypto as I think it should be. Um, like there's a lot of amazing artistic talent down there and, you know, we want to help foster that innovation on average. So we want to target that region on board a, a lot of artists in that region and get them, you know, you, get them used to this idea of creating NFTs, right? So we can solve the content side. Um, we can bring out some of that work that maybe just never would have been addressed because A, an education issue, a technological barrier issue, whatever it may be. 
and start to kind of foster those communities down there and grow that region more. I'm very excited when you talk about uh, crypto art because I, I'm a crypto artist myself. So I am always want to learn and discover new, new projects. So what kind of art forms do you see on Avalanche the most? Is it visual arts? Um, music, is it like abstract art or portrait or dance or crypto sculpture? What type of art form do you see? Mostly right now, what we're seeing are like people who are doing one of one, just like almost even sometimes hand-drawn pieces and then converting them. I think what we're going to start to, what you're going to start to see over the coming months, we've been working on a, and I like a process and a program here for some time that should be, you know, starting to roll out here pretty soon is we want to address the full scope of the market, right? So we want amazing one-of-one -one artists. You can think of people like X-Copy, even like Grant Yoon, people in that space who are doing like more one-of-one -one pieces or like they make a piece and do the open edition, one of 25. So we're going to start to bring some of that to life. We also want to see more generative art. So people who are using, you know, code to make art. Uh, we think that's a fantastic, uh, fantastic vertical. No one's currently doing that. So we're going to be building out some of that. Um, we want to also start to tap into some AI art. So we're seeing, we're starting to see a lot of really great creative AI art start to come out. Uh, someone sold a piece maybe a few months ago for like $50,000, $60,000. I can't remember her name, but it was kind of like a big foundational uh, AI piece. So that's a market we also want to address. As far as music goes, um, in the NFT space, music and fashion are definitely our like 1A, 1B approach after uh, art and, and creative. But I can't tell you how that looks yet. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. You know, it's like there's a lot of traditional power players. We think it's going to start at the grassroots ground up. And I haven't seen a clear path on how this stuff integrates yet. Doesn't mean it's not going to. It's just, you know, it's something I'm still kind of researching and trying to figure out. So those are priority course for us next year, this year. How do you reach out to your customers? Do you train them in your tools? How, how do you find the artists? We have a program where, we're going to be rolling out here soon that's going to be addressing that. Um, I can't say too much on this, but what we have found so far that that resonates the most in the community is artists tend to be very, most of the times, very like giving people. And a lot of them have very humble beginnings and they're very open to giving back and helping other people uh, along the journey of like, hey, I don't, I, I may maybe do art, but I don't know what this is or I, I'm an artist, but I think NFTs are a scam and they destroy the environment. So there's an educational component that that you know we're going to be working on. And there's a, hey, I've done this. I can show you how component. And I think you could kind of piece that together. Um, but that's kind of our, our approach to it. It's taking people who have accomplished themselves in the space, who have resonance in the space, and then um, you know empowering them to teach others and onboard others. About how many artists are you working with or are using your platform today? Right now, that number is is low. Uh, it's not extremely low, but it's not as large as we'd like it. So um, I'd say anywhere. Like I think we compiled a list, and there's like fifty to seventy five. But we want to really like hyper grow that number, and so that's really what the focus is going to be is is going to be artists and onboarding as many as we can over the next six months. Is that something of a pivot for the company that you're moving from where you were to a real focus on this? I wouldn't necessarily say it's a pivot. When I started in June, NFTs kind of like, we, there was no real, no one really owned the vertical. So there was no real focus on it. I think it's a pivot in terms of the market because the market is very focused on one specific thing, which are profile pictures. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to have that stuff as well. And it's going to be a part of what we're doing. But 
it's always been hard for me to say, hey, in two years from now, these profile picture things will be what NFTs are at their highest level, right? Like when I was in New York, um, I had an amazing chance to tour Pace Gallery and meet, and meet some people at, at some galleries in, in that. And I saw that that market and I'm like, it's a huge market. There's so many, there's so many complex intricacies of how it moves, the different levels of galleries. And so I'm like, there's no doubt in my mind that those things eventually are going to be remade in a digital space. And there will be gallery one, two, three, eventually museums, same types of concepts. And so I anticipate over the next, you know, coming years, those worlds should start to merge more. And I think the traditional art market was 50 billion. I don't want to quote this wrong, but something really, really large. And so like, if you ask me, do I think the NFT space has the ability to merge into that and become really big? I would say that's a very high probability. And there's a lot of, you know, amazing real fundamental use cases that I can get out of that. And PFPs, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out their, their fit, right? Like outside of just speculative gambling assets, which is fine. There's something wrong with that. People that everyone's allowed to address the market and play it the way they'd like. And we're going to help onboard some of that stuff because I think there's some creative things around identity there. But uh, I would say it's not a popular thing to do right now. <laughs> As you're talking about it, it's really not the digital collectible. It's digital art as opposed to baseball cards. Is that fair as as you see the future of this? Do you think the digital collectibles will have less value? Will it be a, you know versus digital art, which could be collectibles? But but you know what I'm talking. My distinction. I think it's very clear if you if you say hey digital art, it makes sense because anyone who's ever been like in the arts, they're like totally understand. Where the collectible side, people get slightly confused on is like specifically around the profile picture stuff, right? Because it's it it looks like it's just like a ba- trading baseball cards, and I agree to an extent, but profile pictures do have a few key deliverables that I don't think are, that you can get elsewhere, but they exist in our current space. So like one is this concept of identity and community so that, you know, a lot of this, a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the blockchain, the, the crypto community lives on Twitter and it's very heavily anonymous. And so you need a way to express your identity in that community and profile pictures uniquely fit that. say like, Hey, I am this thing. Right. And so that's one. Two, I think they serve or have the potential to serve a way to like flex your status, right? In a digital space, like a Lambo or a Rolex, right? Something that shows like I have status, wealth, and power. My, my only problem is when I, when I get into these conversations is people say like, well, they can be like Rolexes. And I'm like, well, the difference is you know, Rolex has been around hundreds of years. Presidents have worn them. They have a really long, like a big staying power. They have status because they have years of proving out that status. It's hard for me to say, hey, a profile picture, which has been around a year and a half, is going to carry the same status over a long period of time as Rolex. That's just, it's a very hard, like maybe there's a lot of potential that it could be that, but it's very hard for a brand to continue on that long and carry that status that long, right? Rolex has done it, Gucci, Prada's, Louis Vuitton's, but these are legacy brands that have kings and queens and presidents and senators wearing their products. So I think that the, the potential is there? Will it get there? I think the verdict's out, but I think it's possible. So if you were giving an advice to somebody like Fanatics who just sold their um, interest in the card business or another sports entity, would you say focus on tickets, not on digital collectibles? Or is there something else you would do? I would say probably selling just digital collectibles is a few years away, right? And it's very similar to saying like, in, in the educational space, everything's going to be, I've heard, how many times have you heard this? Everything's going to be an ebook. No one's going to want books anymore. Maybe, 
maybe years now after people have been way more accustomed to it, I watch my nephew, he's on a phone 24 seven. He's very, way more like digital friendly. So maybe, maybe digital collectibles are too early and people just, you know, people with money still want baseball. They still want a Pokemon. I grew up with Pokemon cards. I didn't grow up with digital Pokemon cards, right? So I think that space might just be a few years away from the collectors actually like wanting to participate in, a, in like a more like, I actually own these. I would say if you want to enter the digital collectible space, there has to be more than just like, it's a picture. Like you got to have a component to it that makes it gamified and fun, right? Because at the end of the day, you're just, you're, you're trading. The only reason you're buying them is to either just buy them and hold them forever or to buy them to trade them. And if you're going to do that, add a mechanic in there that makes it engaging and fun, as opposed to just, you open a pack, you get five cards and that's it. Because people will just want physically, because that's what they've done their whole life. So if I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is on the digital um, and a digital collectibles, if it's gamified and fun, it may do something right now, but as just a collectible to hold and sell. Yeah. Who, well, yeah. And it's like, who are you, who are you selling to? Right. Like if you're going to be selling digital baseball cards, who are your buyers? You know, majority of them buy baseball cards because they like baseball cards. <laughs> they frame them, they put them in the boxes, they go to the shows, they, they, they display them. Right. So it's like, it's like, if you're going to address that market, then you need to address that market and that market likes physicals. So like, I'm not saying that, that there's no potential for digitals to exist, but like, I don't think you can just be like, we're going to take this physical thing and make it digital. I don't see the market wanting that. You got to add a primitive, make it new, fresh. Well, Dominic Carbonaro, thank you so much for uh, being with us at the whole Metaverse podcast. So we, we wish you uh, good luck at Avalanche and, and, and good luck to, to the Avalanche uh, ecosystem. And we definitely love to you know, keep in touch and learn more about the future uh, project and use case at Avalanche. Thank you very much and, and have a wonderful day. Thank you both. Thank you. Take care. Appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to The Whole Metaverse, a podcast from the New York University School of Professional Studies Metaverse Collaborative. The Whole Metaverse is produced by Make More Media. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and if you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe for more content. For more information about the NYU Metaverse Collaborative, please head to www.sps.nyu.edu.